One of the interesting and kind of, to me, fascinating things that kind of got popular this year while everyone was under quarantine orders or in shelter in place uh, was the comeback of puzzles. I mean, if you would have gone into a store on this day last year, like if you'd have walked into Target and you'd been like, man, I really want a puzzle, you probably wouldn't have been able to find one. You go into Target today and they got like this whole giant section of puzzles, like everything from Star Wars to Thomas Kincaid. I mean, you want a puzzle, you can get it. And personally, I kind of like the idea of puzzles. My personality likes to be able to just zone in and kind of focus on one thing for a long period of time and put all the pieces together. Uh, However, my children are not yet at a stage in life where they can appreciate that. Uh, Our two-year-old, we have affectionately nicknamed her the destroyer. And so puzzles don't really happen in our house. Um, Every now and then I can convince my kids to do one. And usually I can get them to do one that's more their speed. It involves uh, Mickey and his friends, as you can see here. But as what happened with this puzzle, uh, you know, they'll get really excited about it for about a minute, and then they're off playing in the room, playing with their toys, doing other things, and then here I am, fully grown 33-year-old man putting together a Mickey puzzle and really enjoying it. Um, This is what we did on our vacation. And if you're like me, you see that missing piece right there? It just really bothers me. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't bother anybody else, but didn't get the quite satisfying thing of completing it. Uh, But the truth is, the thing about puzzles is some pieces are really obvious where they go. Like when you get to Mickey's ears, I mean, come on. We all know Mickey's ears, right? We know how that puzzle piece fits into the big picture. But there's other pieces in puzzles, and sometimes you look at it, and it's just like one solid color, and you don't understand it, and you don't know how it fits in. I mean, what do you do with that piece? Do you just chuck it? No, you do the hard work of figuring out how it fits into the bigger picture. So when you're done, you can see the complete picture. But I've noticed something similar happens as we read through God's Word. Like we've been going through the book of Exodus, and there's been some amazing passages and some amazing stories. I mean, God calling Moses through a burning bush. We see the plagues in Egypt and God rescuing his people out of slavery. And then we just finished looking through the Ten Commandments, and it's so epic and it's so amazing. And then we get to chapter 21, and we're kind of like, huh? Like, how does this part of the Bible fit? How does this chapter, how does this portion of Scripture fit into God's big picture of redemption? And if we're not careful, oftentimes what happens is we will look at that part of Scripture and we won't know what to do with it, and we'll maybe just skip it. Or we'll read it, and we're like, man, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know if I like the way this makes me feel, and so we'll ignore it. And we'll pretend like it's not there and then just cross our fingers and hope somebody doesn't ask us, hey, have you ever read this in the Bible? But what I'd like to do this morning is actually dig into a few chapters of Scripture, a portion of Scripture that sometimes we look at it and we're like, man, I don't know what to do with that. And hopefully as we work through it, we can see how it fits into God's big picture, his grand story of redemption. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. We're going to work through chapter 21, 22, 23, and 24 from a very high-end view this morning. I will take the time to read through chapter 24. It's 18 verses. We'll take the time to read through that. So if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand. Uh, If you're watching at home and you want to stand, feel free to. Uh, If you don't, nobody will know, so you're good. Exodus chapter 24. I'm going to begin reading in verse number one, and we'll read our way all the way down through the chapter. Then he said to Moses, go up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and bow and worship at a distance. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach. 
and the people are not to go up with him. Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Those are what we're going to be looking at here this morning. Then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early the next morning and he set up an altar and 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. Then he sent out young men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in the basins and the other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. Verse number seven says, then he took the covenant scroll. Sounds like something straight out of Lord of the Rings, right? I'm expecting Lord Elrond to come out at any moment. He took the covenant scroll. Those are the commands we're going to learn about this morning. And he read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Verse eight, Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people. How'd you like to sit on the front row of that service? You guys think you have it bad. And said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, and as clear as the sky itself. And God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandments that I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up onto the mountain of God. He told the, Israel, he told the elders, Wait here for us until we return. Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray, and then we will jump into a message entitled, very simply, The Law of Moses. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your word. And I pray that as we look into some passages of scripture that maybe some people would struggle with and Maybe some people would point to these passages and even use them as an excuse not to believe the Bible. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and that your spirit would show us what God is actually doing in these passages so that we can understand how it fits into your big picture, your grand story of redemption. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, like we said last few weeks, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments, uh, but you may not realize this. God gave more than just the Ten. We like to, and rightfully so, focus on the 10. Those are kind of like the big picture of it. But as we're going to see in chapters 21, 22, and 23, God gives these almost 50 other commandments that really unpack the 10 commandments and show the nation of Israel what it looks like to live out those 10 commandments in their specific context. Now, we have to remember the context that he is giving this to. This is to Israelites in the ancient world. And so sometimes when we read some of these, we struggle with them a little bit. We read this in California, of all places, in the year 2020, and we go, what in the world is going on? Some of these are weird. Some of these are maybe even a little offensive. But while we read these, we need to understand something that I think is very important. It's going to serve as our theme throughout the message this morning. And that's, while the will of God never changes, several places in Scripture tell us that God never changes, His will never changes, the expression of God's will will often change. So first of all, our first point this morning is we need to have an understanding of the historical context of the law of Moses. 
an understanding of the historical context of law of Moses. Now, we know God's will will never change. God's will is God's will, and it will always be God's will. That being said, the expression, how that gets played out, does vary because oftentimes people find themselves in different contexts. And we need to remember that as we look at this this morning. Now, Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, there's only two commandments. He's like, I could take all the commandments in the Old Testament and sum it up as this, to love God and love your neighbor. Paul said in Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. He unpacks this even more in Romans 13. He says the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, do not covet. And any other commandment that includes the 50 that we're trying to work through today are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So as we look at the law of Moses, what we need to realize is this is God showing his people in this specific context, this is what it looks like to love God and love your neighbor in what was really a very barbaric period of world history. I mean, you get out your history book and you go back and you look at the beginning of time, it was messed up. It was very, very barbaric. And so what God is doing is he is giving them an example. He's giving them his law to demonstrate this is what it looks like to love God and to love people in a very barbaric period of history. Uh, some of the laws, it might be easy, easy for us to understand how they apply, but then some of them we scratch our head at. Take, for example, Exodus 21, verse number 2. If you want to flip in your Bible, you can there, but let me read the first six words for you. When you buy a Hebrew slave... And we're like, hard stop, hard stop. What is God saying? What is God doing here? But as we put that in its historical context, what we'll realize was, unfortunately, in this historical context, slavery was a part of the world. It was a part of every nation. It was a part of every people group. It was just a fact of life. As unfortunate and as wrong as it was, it was. Now, we do need to address that the type of slavery that we see getting fleshed out here is not the type of slavery that we often think about. This type of slavery we often think about and what was in our nation's early history was fueled by kidnapping. That was a forceful removal of one person, taking them to another place so that they could be under your lifelong oppression. That is not the type of slavery that's being dealt with here. What we think of in terms of slavery was actually a capital offense under the law of Moses. If you go to Exodus 21, verse 16, the Bible says, whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. Whether he sells him or the person is found in his possession. So if you kidnap a person, capital offense. If you buy a person, that was a capital offense under the law of God. So we have to understand this isn't what we instantly think about given our historical context. The word for slave here in Exodus 21 is often translated servant or worker. Oftentimes it was self-imposed as a way to pay off debt. They didn't have bankruptcy in the ancient world. And so if you were in crazy amounts of debt, what you could do is you could actually hire yourself out for a period of six years to work off that debt. Sometimes it was given as a way to make restitution for a crime. And as you continue to read Exodus 21, you'll see that this type of service was limited to six years. Every seven years, everybody that was in this type of servitude got to go free because God wanted to make sure that this wasn't that this didn't become lifelong or oppressive. At the end of the six years, you were granted freedom the exact same way you entered into that agreement. So if you went into this type of servitude married, when you were free, you got to keep your family. So God's law made sure that families would stay together. If you went into that type of servitude 
as a single guy and your life got better under those six years, you realize, man, I have it really good working for this guy and he's given me a wife and I now have a family. And if you realize, man, my life is actually better now as a result, there was an option for you to say, hey, I'm gonna commit the rest of my life to working for this man. But even that was voluntary. It wasn't oppressive, it wasn't coerced. The law were given, basically what we see is that the laws were given to make sure that people in this vulnerable position were treated fairly. And as you read these laws, you're going to see the same principle play out in verse number 7. Verse number 7 of chapter 21 is another one we struggle with. It says, when a man sells his daughter as a concubine. I mean, how many of you guys have a daughter in here? Like, raise your hand. Like, I can't fathom that. I can't understand that. I can't put myself in that position. And when I read that, I think, what in the world is God's law allowing but again, as we put it in its historical context, we can get a more holistic picture. You see, in this case, if a father was doing this, he wasn't trying to get rid of his daughter to make profits off of her. If I could use a Star Trek reference, he wasn't a Ferengi trying to make profits. He's just, in this culture, in this context, this would have been a poor man who could not afford to take care of his family, who could barely afford to, to give them the minimum amount of food they would need to survive. And the only chance he had of actually giving his daughter a better life was sending her off to a family that was more wealthy, that had more resources. Hopefully, she would get married into that family and have a better life. And so as you read these verses in the historical context, you see that God actually gives special protection for women in this vulnerable situation. I mean, we read the first part of those verses, and, and, and understandably so. We, we're like, what, what's going on here? But as you read them, what you begin to realize is God is actually making these laws to protect people that were vulnerable. God was actually making these laws to make sure people in these difficult situations were taken care of and treated humanely. Uh, Tim Chester, he wrote uh, a commentary on Exodus called Exodus for You. He says, there is an accommodation to the realities of life in a fallen world with an attempt to limit the harm caused by sin. That's what we see doing here. As you read the Bible in its entirety, you'll realize that throughout Scripture and throughout the redemptive history, God actually plants the seeds that would eventually lead to the end of slavery. And we're so thankful for how we see that played out throughout history. But what God's doing as he's doing that is he's making sure that people that are vulnerable, people that are in these tough spots, people that are in situations that are less than ideal are taken care of. And that was actually unheard of at the time. No other ancient law had laws that would protect people that were vulnerable. The vulnerable were to be exploited. They were to be taken advantage of. They were the weak. They were the outcast. But here, what we see God doing in his laws, he's actually making laws that protect them. In these three chapters, there's almost 50 laws. And nearly half of them are written to protect people who in this historical context were vulnerable. The oppressed, the weak, the poor, those who were victims. God was actually setting up in his law means of protecting them so that they would be treated humanely. I mean, just look at how Pharaoh treated the, um, the Israelites a few chapters earlier. Exploited them, was oppressive. And what God is doing, he's actually creating laws that protect the vulnerable in society. For the most part, as we also look at these, you read these laws and there's a lot of references to animals and to land. And, and you're like, man, I don't have a goat to milk, so this law has nothing to do with me. Well, again, historical context. This was largely an agrarian society. They lived off the land. They were farmers. And so these laws would have been very practical for them to know how to love God and love their neighbor. Some of these laws were designed to avoid confusion or contamination with the Canaanite religions that were in this area, in this region. As you study those out, to say they were barbaric would be the understatement of the century. 
I mean, as part of these societies, human sacrifices were regular. Witchcraft was regular. Bestiality was a regular part of it. And what God is doing is he's protecting his people. He's trying to make sure that his people can remain separate so they can serve as priests for the entire world, leading all the world into worship with God. That's why when you read some of these laws, you're like, man, that penalty seems really steep. What God is doing is he's trying to protect his people in this historical context. So first of all, we need to recognize the laws were given to people in a very different time than our own. And oftentimes we struggle to understand them because we're just in a different context. So understanding the historic context. Secondly, we need to understand the redemptive context of the law of Moses. Understanding the redemptive law. Not only do we need to understand the period of history these were given in, we need to know how does this fit in God's grand story of redemption. Well, Romans tells us that the purpose of the law was to reveal our need for a savior. They couldn't keep it. The point wasn't for them to perfectly keep it. The point was it would keep them dependent on God. So not only did God's law flesh out what it looked like for them to love God and others in this historic context, it also kept them dependent on him. That's why as part of the old covenant, they were given this sacrificial system. So even though they would fail, they had a way to experience restoration with God. They would stay dependent on God. The book of Galatians refers to the law of Moses or the Old Covenant as a schoolmaster or child training to make sure that the nation of Israel would survive until the Messiah came. Galatians 3. For the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For through faith, you're all sons of God in Christ. I'll flesh this out for you. I have rules for my little children that are very strict they might look at me and say, Daddy, that's oppressive, <laughs> if they could use that language. But my point of having those strict rules are to protect them so that they can grow up and one day be able to know on their own what's safe and what's not safe, so that hopefully they'll grow up and they'll have enough common sense to know, hey, I shouldn't stick my finger in an electric socket. I don't need that rule anymore. I just know that. So the purpose of the law was to be a guardian. It was to keep them safe. It wasn't so that they could somehow earn their salvation. It was just to curb the effects of sin in a fallen world until the Messiah came. It was a guardian until Christ came when they no longer needed the guardian because now God says, I've written the law in your hearts. You don't need this guardian protecting you from the result of sin anymore. You now have the Holy Spirit who serves as that law for you. We also see that the law was one of the ways God reinstituted or recreated his people. God made the world perfectly in Genesis, in creation. But then as we see really quickly in the Bible, sin comes in and it ruins God's design. And what God is doing here, as they are setting up this old covenant that would take them all the way through the time of Christ, what we see God doing is he is trying to recreate and he's trying to put the pieces back together of a fallen world. In Genesis 1, you see a separation of light and darkness. You see a separation of water and land. You see a separation of day and night. You see this replicated throughout the law. Animals that would span the separation of earth and land were considered unclean because God separated the earth and land. Animals that had both scales and feet or aquatic animals without scales were considered unclean because they would span, the, they would span what God separated. They were transgressing the boundaries of an ordered creation. That's why throughout the law, you're like, man, why are some of these animals unclean and not unclean? Like, I don't get it. What's the point? Well, the point was God was symbolically separating things that in his creation were separated. In the law, things that brought life and things that brought death are separated. That's why you weren't allowed to eat animals that would feed on dead carcasses. Because what brought life wasn't supposed to come from what was dead. 
That's why defective things were considered unclean. I often joke about uh, Exodus 23, 19. This is another fun one. It says, you must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't know what your lunch plans are for this afternoon, but if boiled goat's on the menu, <laughs> we're under the new covenant, so have at it. No. Uh, well, the reason a goat shouldn't be cooked in its mother's milk is because its mother's milk was what was to give it life, not death. And so we look at that and we think, man, that is such a random, why is that in there? Because God is reinstituting, God is recreating his original design and creation. And so what brings life should not bring death. And so we see this symbolic distinction that God makes in the law. It was symbolic, but it was important. These laws are a testimony for the work, the way that God reworks and reorders the world after it's been ruined by sin. I mean, you read the Old Testament and you see King David saying, in Psalm 119, 97, oh, how I love God's law. It's my meditation the day and night. He ain't talking about John 3, 16. He's talking about the law. Why would he say it's his delight and he meditates on it? It says not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I don't get it. He loved it because it was a symbolic way of God fixing what sin had ruined. And that's why often the Old Testament saints loved it and they would heap on praise and adoration onto God's law. For us, that law is now transferred to Christ. Because Christ has fulfilled the law for us, and in him, everything will be made new. The symbolic they hope they had under the law, we now have the real deal. The symbol has been replaced with reality. So we don't say, like David said, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day and night. We say, I love Jesus. I meditate on his work. I meditate on his word. I meditate on him. That love is transferred to Christ. So that is the historical, and that is the redemptive context we find the law. And as we understand that, it starts to make more sense. The law of Moses was given, but we still haven't answered the question, what do we do with it today? Because remember, while the will of God never changes, the expression of God's will will often change. So lastly this morning, I want to look at understanding how we relate to the law of Moses. As you read the Bible in its entirety, you will very quickly see, especially when you get to the New Testament, we're not under the old covenant anymore. We're not the nation of Israel. We're not under the old covenant we now live under what Jesus calls the new covenant. We've been grafted into God's people, according to Romans. Because the symbol has now been replaced with reality, Jesus himself said many of these symbolic distinctions are no longer necessary. Let's look at Mark chapter number 7. The Bible says, and he said to them, are you also lacking in understanding? This is Jesus talking. He said, don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it doesn't go into his heart, it goes into his stomach and it's eliminated. Like it goes through your digestive system and that's it, it's done. But the Bible says, thus when Jesus said that, he declared all foods clean. Meat's back on the menu, boys. If you like bacon, if you like boiled goat, you're okay. But I want you to notice, um, we, we also see this, excuse me, happening in Acts chapter number 10 with Peter and Cornelius. We also see this in Colossians chapter number 2, some other great passages for you to study out. But even though the symbolic has now passed away, we don't need the symbolic rituals, we don't need the symbolic separation of clean and unclean animals anymore, there is still a separation of what is sinful or anti-creation. We still separate from that. Notice Jesus goes on to say, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of, a out of people's hearts, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. You want a list, he gives a good one. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Paul unpacks this more in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, don't become partners with those who don't believe. 
For what partnership is there with righteousness and unrighteousness or lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What argument or what agreement does Christ have with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? I mean, he goes on and on and he just kind of unpacks this idea that, look, there's still this separation for the Christian between us and sin, between light and darkness, between righteousness and wickedness. There's still this separation. He goes on to say, touch not the unclean thing. Come out from among them. God says, I've made you holy. And so while we don't have to live under the symbolic ritualism anymore, there's still a separation between God's original design and a fallen world. Now, he goes on in chapter 24 of Exodus, as you continue to read the story, the people of Israel, they confirm this covenant with God. Moses relates all the laws to the people, and the people said, we will do it. And just like if you keep reading, we don't often do that. They didn't either. But they commit to doing them. Then they sacrifice bulls on the altar. Moses sprinkles blood on the altar and on the people. So the covenant with Moses was made through the blood. This signified, it was uh, symbolic of the cleansing and atoning aspects of the blood in the altar. The blood links the altar and the people, symbolizing their union to God and Israel in this covenant. The Lord had called Israel to keep this covenant as a means of serving as his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. After the ceremony, Moses and the elders, they, then they see God. And it's this amazing picture. God doesn't harm them. The Bible's very clear. God didn't harm them. Why? Because they were now ceremonially clean in his presence. Moses then goes to the top of the mountain and receives the stone tablets of the law. So just like in the Old Covenant here in Exodus 24, you see this covenant is being formed by blood. For us under the New Covenant, that covenant was also formed by blood when Jesus shed his blood for our sins. Again, we see the picture replacing, uh, the picture being replaced by the reality. What was symbolic is now real under Jesus. In the New Covenant, the law of Moses was written on tables of stone. In the New Covenant, God says, now I've written the law on your hearts. To say it the way the New Testament often does, the shadow has been replaced by the substance. We now have the real deal. We're not under the Old Covenant because Jesus was sacrificed. When Jesus at the Last Supper said, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. And just like they could go into the presence of God after they were ceremonially clean, we can always go into the very throne room of God at his very feet. And I find it interesting that it, it talks about God's feet here. We could go sit at the feet of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and we can boldly go into his throne room. Just like they ate in the presence of God after this whole ceremony, we too find eternal satisfaction in Jesus, who is our bread of life. We see the symbol being replaced with the reality. But as often happens, Christians would often feel like, well, we still need to obey the law. And Paul actually rebukes this in the book of Galatians. We've preached through that whole book before. Paul says, it's not the law that forms you, it's actually Christ that forms you. Jesus is what gives shape to the Christian life. Jesus and his Holy Spirit working in your heart are what gives shape to the Christian life. The law of Christ cannot be codified in a series of rules. Romans 7 says, we now have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The spirit now illuminates God's word so that we will know God's will because our context very rapidly changes. We, I mean, that's why there's not like a list in the New Testament because our context changes so much. And so we now have the Holy Spirit who helps us know based on the word of God how we can love others and love God in a very real way. The spirit illuminates God's word. This is what the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians 5. 
The Spirit grows in us virtues that cannot be created or even expressed by the law. Like we saw a few weeks ago, having a law doesn't make you want to obey it. It might curb the effects of sin. It will keep you dependent on God, but it doesn't make you want to obey. It doesn't produce patience or love or gentleness, but now the Holy Spirit does. So the words of the law, Moses, no longer apply to Christians in the same way that it did to Israel. They're not a list of rules that we have to live under because we now have the law of Christ written on our hearts. The writer of Hebrews says it very bluntly in Hebrews 8.13. He says, by saying a new covenant, he, Jesus, has declared the first one is obsolete. It's obsolete. So what do we do? Do, do we just, don't need that chapter? Don't need that? No. No, absolutely not. What do we do with it then? Well, consider what Paul said in Romans 15. Whatever written was, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. He's not talking about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. He's talking about the old covenant. He's talking about the Old Testament. It was written for our learning. We may not have to obey the letter of the law, but it still matters because it informs our understanding of a Christian. How does it do so? Well, what the law of Moses does, along with the rest of the Bible, and supremely Jesus himself, is it shows us what it means to love God and love others in in different contexts, in different situations. Some of those contexts don't apply anymore because that's not where we're at in society anymore. But it still gives us tangible examples of what does it mean to love God and love others. The law of Moses defined what it meant to love your neighbor back then. And as we understand that, that helps our understanding of how we can love our neighbor now. As you read Exodus 21 through 23, it outlines penalties for various crimes. And if you were to kind of sum up all these penalties and crimes, you would get two parts. There's a restoration for what is lost. I think that's a good idea even still for today. There's also a punishment equivalent to the intended harm. So if there's an accident that happens, you have to make restitution. You have to fix what was broken, but there's no punishment because you didn't commit a crime. If you did mean to commit a crime, but no damage was done, there's punishment because you meant to commit the crime, but there's no restitution because you didn't break anything. And then if there's both, well, then there's obviously both. So we can see the wisdom that we can still glean and learn, even though we're not under the letter of the law. If I could quote Tim Chester one more time, He said, when we begin to see the law in this way, a case study for how we apply God's will to specific contexts, we realize that we may not have a goat to milk or a bull that enjoys goring people. Any of you have a bull that, you know, it runs people through too often? No? Okay, I didn't think so. Even though we don't have a goat to milk or a bull that enjoys goring people, we do have many varied situations in life. And because we're God's people and we desire to live for him, And whereas God's people, we can use these laws to show us principles that enable us to live for him. And last, and I think the most important way we should relate to the law of God is when we understand the law, I think it gives us a better understanding of grace. When we feel the depths of what what we mean when we say Jesus fulfilled the law for us, Jesus kept the law on our behalf, but if we don't understand the weight of the law, we don't really have any weight to Jesus fulfilled it for me. When we don't feel ourselves broken under the weight of the law, we don't have a deep understanding and appreciation for what Jesus did for us in the cross. Jesus kept the law on our behalf, and friends, that's good news. But if we don't understand the law, we don't have as much appreciation for what he did. Throughout the law, we see blessings that come from obedience and curses that come from disobedience. You get into those in Deuteronomy. And what we see in Jesus is somebody who perfectly kept the law on our behalf 
And even though we break it and we deserve the curse, he gives us the blessing. And just like we deserve the curse because we broke it, Jesus says, I'll take the curse for you, even though I don't deserve it, and I will give you the blessing. Because Jesus is our righteousness, we don't have to follow law, but we don't ditch it either because one, it gives us examples of what it means to love God and others. And two, it helps us understand what Jesus has accomplished for us. Maybe there's been times this week and you know you've sinned, you know you've done wrong. And you feel the weight of that. Maybe there's been times where as a mom this week, you tried so hard to be a good mom, but you failed. You felt like, man, the kids, they just pushed me past the limit today. And I lost my temper with them again. Or guys, maybe you're here. And you looked at porn this week. And you didn't want to. You know it was wrong. And you feel this deep sense of shame from it. You failed. And you feel like, what's even the point? Or maybe there's been another setback that's happened in your life and it's just brought you crashing down and you feel the weight of the law. You feel the weight of, I am not good enough. You feel the weight that you have experienced as a failure. Maybe you're full of envy or discontent and you don't like your life. You feel like you've let God down and you feel like he's a million miles away from you. When we measure ourselves up against God's law as is fulfilled in Jesus, the verdict is always we fail. We've been weighed, we've been measured, and we've been found wanting. And I think we need to acknowledge that to some degree. Acknowledge it. Feel it. And then turn to Jesus, friend. Turn to Jesus. Look at his life. Every act of love that Jesus ever did, every act of obedience that Jesus ever played out, every right word that he ever spoke, he did that for you. He did that for you. And when we have faith in Christ, God places you in Jesus and all that love, all that obedience, every right word spoken, you now get credit for that. The blessing that comes from living out a perfect life, which we can never do, we get in Jesus because he did it for us. Maybe you're here in the building this morning or you're watching online and you're like, Pastor Nick, there's never been a moment I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus. You you, you mentioned some of those sins that Jesus mentioned. We're talking about the law, and I'm feeling the weight of it. I'm feeling broken because I realize that I I, I don't measure up. None of us do. Uh, Paul said in Romans 3.10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. We've said several times, and we say it often, we can't fulfill the law. That's not the point. The point of the law is to break us, to make us realize we need a Savior. The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. There's a consequence. There's a punishment, a penalty that comes as a result. But God didn't leave us there. He said the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, he gives you all the blessings that come from living a perfectly righteous life. He restores you back to God. And then what he does for the rest of your life is he begins to put the pieces back together that sin has broken. If you have questions about what it means, how do I place my faith in Jesus? Elbow the guy next to you and say, I need to do this, how do I do that? If you're watching online, go to fresnochurch.com connect. Fill out the online connection form and we'll reach out to you. But for those of us who are still in Christ, I mean, Christians should be the quickest people to raise their hand and say, I don't got it all together. I fail and I fail often. But we can experience the righteousness that Jesus lived out for us. Even though we still struggle, Jesus lived a perfect life we can never live. Remember, every time you break God's law, Jesus kept that law for you. And every time you fail to do God's will, Jesus perfectly kept God's will for you. 
Say to yourself, that law that I've just broken, Jesus has kept it on my behalf. The Father has put you in Jesus, and he treats you as Jesus' record deserves. And so the verdict he writes across your life is not failure, is not sinner, it's you are my child who I love, and with you I am well pleased, just like he said to Jesus. Because in Christ, we get credit for the perfect life he filled out. You are righteous in Christ. You are empowered by the Spirit, and you are loved by the Father. And today, say, Pastor Nick, you don't know how I broke God's law yesterday. I may not, but today, you can seek God again, and you can do God's will today because you are empowered by the Spirit, and you are loved by the Father, and you are accepted in Christ. And you can do that tomorrow, and you can do it the next day and the day after. So here's our takeaway for this morning. I know this message has been a lot more academic than maybe we're used to, but here's our takeaway. Acknowledge the weight of the law. Read it. Let it break you. Let it. But then live in the grace of Jesus. Recognize the way I break God's law, Jesus has fixed it for me, and now I am him. Acknowledge the weight of the law, but live in the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that as we wrestle through these passages, and Lord, I, I realize there was, a, there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't cover. But Lord, as we walk through and as we think about your law, I pray that as Christians we wouldn't ignore it, even though sometimes it can be difficult and hard to understand. But Lord, that we would realize that this is what you did for me. And I pray as Christians, when we fail, we would realize that even though we failed, Jesus was perfectly righteous for us. And even when we struggle, Jesus was perfectly righteous for us. And I pray that as we feel the weight of the law, we would turn and live in the grace of our Savior. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.